today we're talking about spiritual growth and growing and building is, is very similar in many many ways um, when I was a younger man and living in Florida I used to work construction and I moved away from Florida for about a year and a half went up to the North Carolina and then I moved back to Florida and uh, got a job working on a construction crew and the job was building duplexes in a neighborhood and all the duplexes were very similar two-bedroom three-bedroom homes and we'd build one and move on to the next one so you know as we built these things building you can come to an end and you see the, f the finished product and then you move on to the next one but as it entails in growth I grew in my ability to do that from each unit that we built the crew grew each time we built one we understood the blueprints a little bit better some were different but they were very similar some were exactly the same blueprints so as we got better at part of my job was estimating materials so as I built the same thing over and over again my estimation of materials got better so we didn't order as much uh, material that was, was not used so the cost went down a little bit each time we did uh, the building through the house we'd run into little issues and we knew we we're gonna run into the same issue the next building that we did and so we learned how to work through those issues so we became a little more proficient in dealing with those things that we knew were coming up and also each time that we were working on these homes we just understood the process better and as we really just figured out how things were going uh, we built them faster we built them less expensively and and knowing what was happening and and each individual home was slightly different but we were able to increase the build quality because we knew what was coming up and really that's the difference between building and growth because each one of these units that we built we move on to the next one and then the next one and the next we built dozens of these things and each one of those like I said we got a little bit faster a little bit more efficient and the build quality was a little bit better each time so we grew so each one of those houses single-family units that were jammed together as a duplex each one of those that we built was kind of like an an event in our life that we can get into this event and we were done regardless if you grow or you don't you're going to go from event to event to event in your life it's inevitable but the question is what are you going to take from that event into the next event are you going to grow for the next event so the bible has a lot to say about growth and we can talk about physical growth it's like little Sophie she's going to eat and she's going to get bigger and grow and if Gabriel were here you'd see that he's a lot bigger than me Ian's got more muscles than me Zach and Noah they're Noah's back there in the sound booth he's going to be taller than me they're growing they're growing boys but as we go through our life it's inevitable like I said that we're going to have event after event after event and it's a choice on how we move into the next event and what it is that we take with us the event itself is not growth but rather what we take from the event to the next one Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 3 I want to start there I'm going to start with a, a word of prayer and we'll get into the word here dear father God Lord please bless this reading of your word and have it settle in in our hearts and minds and our lives to change us to be even just a little bit more like you we thank you for your word and the clarity in your word in Jesus name we pray amen Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 through 3 I can't tell you what page number it's on if you have your own Bible and I didn't look it up I actually learned last week uh, when I tell you what page number the the verse is on in the the Bible in front of you there's two different Bibles apparently so some of you I may have been telling you the wrong page maybe you had the wrong Bible I don't know so 
Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. And yes, God permit that we move past the elementary teachings. And, and this was written to the Hebrews, and these things here are elementary things in the Christian faith and also in the Jewish faith, the cleansing rites and the laying the hands on the animals and the sacrificial. said, so we need to get past this stuff. We need to move forward to the meat, right? You've heard, get off the milk, get unto the meat. And the reason I have G-R-O-W on the back of your bulletin is just maybe a, an easy way to remember four steps on what we need to do to grow. And the first step for the G is gather. And here we are right now, we're all, we're all gathered together. And that's a very important. We have opportunities most Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Of course, during the summer, we, we take a little bit of a sabbatical. Um, but there's still opportunities to get together. And it doesn't have to be a church-sponsored activity to get together with Christians, by the way. That's something that, that we can do. But you think about each individual person in the body of Christ. And to me, I... I really enjoy bonfire. Anybody enjoy a bonfire? I love a bonfire. We have those a lot in the wintertime at my house. We've been taking down trees from our yard since the, the moment we bought the house and have humongous bonfires. And before I got a tractor, I would, you know, I would burn the fire up and as the wood, basically the wood wasn't spreading out, but the fire was burning all the wood up and the fire wasn't growing as much and it would go weaker because the wood was spread out and I'd, now I can get a tractor and pile it back together and it blaze back up again. But even then, you could have a nice fire going, and it's burning really bright. And if you take one of those logs that's on fire, and you take it out of the fire, and you put it by itself, it'll burn for a little bit, and then it'll start to smolder, and then it'll just smoke, and the rest of the fire is just blazing. But that log that was taken out of that fire is just sitting there. It's no longer burning. And we're very similar in that fashion that when we get taken out of a group of believers that talk about Jesus and, and love Jesus and, and fellowship with each other. It's, that's what we do. I, I called my sister on the, on the road to, uh, the other day. I was traveling down to Florida. I was on the road for a long time and figured while I'm here, just put the Bluetooth on and talk to my sister. I don't call her as much as I ought to. I'm really bad about calling people, by the way. So we got to talking, and naturally, we just talked about the Lord. That's what we wound up doing because that's what Christians do. And we have to have that. We have to be able to, to get together. And the Bible does have quite a lot to say about that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And, and oddly enough today, normally uh, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, generally, sometimes the ESV. And it was funny, you mentioned it last week. When I go into verses, I like to sometimes go into a concordance and see the, the original Hebrew or, or Greek and kind of compare and see which one really I think is the best translation. This week I'm reading mostly out of the NIV. It's odd, right? I really normally don't do that. Not a lot of people gasp, so that's good. But this is actually out of the NIV. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Starting verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Spurring one another along. That is so important that we're there just as the ficuses were up here and we said as a, as a faith family, we will pray for your daughter. We're going to be there beside you. We're going to teach. 
but there's also, just like in baptism, when I, when I got baptized in front of people, it was, hey, now I'm a Christian. You need to hold me accountable to that Christian, to Christian values. I need to be a moral person. I need to spend time with the Lord. I need to spend time with other Christians. And we hold each other accountable for that. And part of growth can't happen just like that fire is going to fizzle out if all the logs get separated. We have to have time to gather together. And I know we have ample opportunity here, but it is so, so, so important. Meeting together, encouraging one another, just like it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Galatians chapter 6, verses 2, just says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Just carry each other's burdens. And today's catalyst lesson in the book of Acts, we, we saw a group of people that were just bringing all their belongings together and, and sharing with one another. And, you know, we talked about it in, in uh, Catalyst class a little bit. You know, it sounds like communism, you know. Well, spirit-led, it works great. You know, put humans in the mix, it, it gets a little messed up. But the fact that we can just be there for each other, carry each other's burdens, and look after one another. In the world's economy, the thought is, I, I need to do right for me, and I need to do right for my family. So that means I need to push everyone else down. I need to, to fight for position. If, if, if there's a... a Something out there that I need, that my family needs, I know that someone else is going to need it too, so I'm going to scratch and fight and poke and bite and try to get it, right? That's, that's the way the world works. But in God's economy, it's just the complete opposite. Because if we're all Christians, we're all looking out for each other, we all esteem others as higher than ourselves, we're really not putting ourselves first, which is, it's hard to do. But putting everyone else first, you think, well, goodness gracious, now... I'm looking out for everybody else. So where does that leave me? Well, what that leaves you is everybody else is putting you first and looking out for you. So in God's economy, that gathering and looking after one another, bearing each other's burdens, many, many hands make light work. And when many, many of God's people get together and carry each other's burdens, life is a lot more doable. It really is. We just cannot do this on our own. And the way God lays it out, it works every time. 2 Corinthians chapter, first chapter and verse 5 says, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. If you've ever been through something with someone, something difficult, and you, you traveled and you journeyed through this tough time or, or tough incident together, you come out the other end closer and stronger. And it's no different with Christ. He, he suffered and died for us. His whole life while he was on this earth was giving to others, was putting others first, constantly. And that's not an easy thing. And when we share in that with him, we grow just so much closer to him. So number one, in growing as a Christian, you have to gather. We need each other. It is imperative. It's super imperative. Those were three verses out of the Bible, I've skipped over about 7,000 of them. It's in there a lot, how important it is that we spend time together. And it's not just, and it's not just spending time. That, that's important. Sometimes it's got to be goofy, but it's spending time with God at the center of what we're spending time around, where we, that closeness just brings us together. Number two in growing as a Christian is the R, which is retreat. Sounds like quite the opposite of gathering, and it is. But retreating, not, not running away from, because you're defeated, but it's just retreating away 
to spend time alone with God. A.W. Tozer once said that if a man wants to be used by God, he cannot spend all his time with people. You have to get away. There has to be a time of getting away and spending time in prayer and reading. And the Lord wants you to get away. It's, it's like a best friend kind of situation. Does anybody here have a best friend or had a best friend in their life? You know it's not because you didn't spend time with them. You can have a group of friends, and a group of friends is really great. But those special relationships, those more intimate relationships, come between best friends or husband and wife when you break away from the group and just spend time together and really get to know each other. And it's the same exact way with Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus did that quite a bit. In the book of uh, Luke, it says, it's Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Yet the news about him, that being Jesus, spread more and more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed, and healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus often withdrew away from the people and prayed. And Jesus, the incarnate God, who was not a weak person at all, um, he, he had to spend time alone with his father. We see him seeking solitude from, from people after performing miracles in Mark in times of grief. Uh, before choosing the 12 apostles, he, he drew away and prayed. Uh, at Gethsemane, when he was praying about the cross that was to come. Um, and other times, solitude was really, really important to Christ. And I cannot put myself in a position that says, well, Jesus needed to do it, but I don't. I, I'm, that's a ridiculous statement. Yes, we do need each other, but we have to withdraw. We have to spend that quiet, quality time with God, and it has to be daily. And I will let you guys know this. As I'm preaching and teaching this word, it's coming back to me as well. So do not think I'm here just saying it's you, it's you, and it's you, and it's not me. I need to do it more often as well. As, as I grow as a Christian, I do see the benefits of it, and I do it more. And I do see as a prayer warrior, there's a couple things that I, I, I've seen as rings true for everybody that, that that praise. Number one, say, I haven't quite perfected it yet, and it's worth every bit of sweat, every bit. I've never seen someone come up to a podium and say, you know, I tried the prayer warrior thing and, I, and, and getting close with Jesus, and, you know, it's just not worth it. I've never heard that said. Never. It's always quite the opposite. It's worth every bit of blood, sweat, and tears, and I haven't achieved perfection yet. I'm still working on it, still working on it. But it is a, it's like that goal of growth, it's, it's not really obtainable. It's not like building the building, building the duplex when I was in Florida. That one's done, now we're moving on. It's like my growth is not done. It's just there's more to go, and it's just, you can't be stagnant. Well, you can. Actually, I don't think you can. I think if you think you're sitting still, you're actually going backwards because everybody else is moving on. You can't sit still. You have to continually grow. Gather together, have to retreat, to spend time with just God. And in Psalm 46.10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. And when you're still, it, it's, that's a lot easier in solitude. The distractions aren't there. If, if I'm not withdrawn away and I need to spend quality time, just alone time with God, it's sometimes impossible. You have to get away because the distractions will pop up. Things will need to get done, and I know me, and most likely most of you, can get drawn away very quickly from distractions and things that need to get done, and 
important things when really there's nothing more important times than just spending that quality alone time with God. Gather together. Retreat, spend time with God. O is obey. Obey. And that's a big one. I mean, both of these have been pretty big. And we could have a 20-part series on each one of these. And obey is, it's, it's so incredibly important. It's so incredibly difficult at times. And it's so incredibly worth it when you do it. Much like prayer, it takes, it takes doing. It really takes doing. And if you think about obedience to God, what does it do? It proves, it proves our love to God. And that, that's something that, you know, we're, we're said to be fruit inspectors, but I'm not really talking about looking at someone else and saying, do they love God? I'm talking about to yourself and your own personal relationship with, with the, the creator of the universe. Do you love him? Do you really love him? And, and obedience proves our love for him. It demonstrates our faithfulness to him. Glorifies him in the world, and it opens avenues of blessing for us. So, First John chapter two, verses three and six: obedience to God is demonstrates our faithfulness to Him. Think about this: what it says in First John, chapter two, verse three through six. We know that we have come to know Him if, 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 if. I'm gonna stop right there. That's a big, big word. This is one of those Bible verses that you can read and feel really good about it and not have read it. Or you can read it and it'll punch you in the gut. But that means something needs to change. If, if our lives and our attitudes and our actions and our feelings aren't in line with the word, we have two choices. We can change our actions and our attitudes and our feelings or we can change God. And I would not suggest the latter because it's impossible. Big if. This is 1 John 2, 3 through 6. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. There's, that's a mouthful. That says a lot. And that is a verse that is both inspiring and a throat punch at the same time. I've, I've seen lots of kids that say, I love my mama, and they treat her like dirt. And I'm telling you, they don't love their mama. They might want to. They might even think they do. But if they don't respect their mama, they don't love their mama. Because love is not a feeling. Love is actually what you do. It's an action. So obedience to God demonstrates our faithfulness to him. I'll back up when obedience to God proves our love for him. It's 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Obedience to God proves our love to him. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. And we saw in the last verse how we love God, right? How we show that. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Obedience to God proves our love for him, it demonstrates our faithfulness to him, and it also glorifies him in the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Obedience to God glorifies him in the world. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
live such good lives among the pagans. You know, we live among the pagans. Turn on the news for five seconds. You'll know we live among the pagans. Live such a good life obeying God that when they accuse you of something wrong, they'll see what you're actually doing and God's going to wind up being glorified. That's our action. That's not our, what we say we do. That's not what we think we should do. That's what we're actually doing. Those things. May those good things glorify God. So not only does it demonstrate our faithfulness to Him, but obedience in God glorifies Him in the world. Also, obedience to God opens avenues of blessing for us. Sometimes we don't like to talk about thinking, oh, I'll do this because it makes me feel good. But I'll tell you something. When God blesses me, I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I, as a child, um, if I did something, did something well and, and my mom or dad said that it was a good job or, or gave me a present or did something nice, I loved it. It was great. That's the way we're built. God knows that. He built us. So to say, uh, you know, I'm not doing this for a reward or I'm not doing this for a blessing. Okay, I know you're doing it for Jesus, but wow, you know, when, when God blesses you, it makes you want to do some more. It really, that's the way we're built. And that's not a bad thing. It's not even a selfish thing. Because when God's blessing you, that means you have a closer relationship with him. And that's the goal. Having a close relationship with God is, gee whiz, is that selfish? Well, then I'm selfish. I'd really like to have a great, wonderful relationship with the creator of the universe. So, Obedience to God opens avenues of blessing for us. Look at John chapter 13, verses 14 through 19. Now, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, John, uh, in chapter 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And this is just subsequent to that. Jesus says in verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now this, we talked about it more at length a few weeks ago when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. We know Jesus' position. We know the normal position of a foot washer. And he lowered himself to that position and, and said, okay, I'm washing your feet. I'm doing this as an example for what you need to do. And when you go do that for other people, I'm going to bless you. So yes, putting other people can be difficult, but when God blesses you, you see how it works, and you want to do it more and more, and it's an amazing thing. But being obedient, that's great, but how do you get it to obedience? What is being obedient? What are the rules, right? You can probably guess the answer if it's G-R-O-W, gather, retreat, obey, the W is the word. The word is in all of these, and prayer in all of these. I was going to do grope, you know, that didn't sound very good, so we took the P out. So, <laughs> prayer isn't all of them. The Word isn't all of them. And as you're gathering, it should be around the Word. As you're in solitude with God, it should be around the Word. As you're obeying, it's obeying as He says in the Word. 2 Timothy 3.16, I think many of you know this verse. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's great. Really? Is that true? Is it, is it really God-breathed? Is it really the truth? It was written thousands of years ago by a bunch of different people and slammed together by men. And Is it really God's word? Or is it not? Can we really trust it? Because when it comes to obedience, when it comes to actually growing, it really comes down to two things. 
two things that will hinder you from doing it. It's either a lack of belief or a fear of man. A lack of belief or a fear of man. And a lack of belief, you need to work that out with God. A fear of man, you need to work that out with God. But I want to do a little exercise with all of you. If we get a slide ready here. Each of y'all should have got a little sheet of paper, and it will have a number one, two, three, four, five on it. And, and this sheet of paper is a copy of the original text. Okay? Just going to do a little, a little play here. I have the original. Right? I've got the, the autograph is what a biblical scholar would call it. I've got the autograph, the original text up here. And each of you have a copy. Now, I will say this. In every single one of your copies, there's an error. There is a slight error. And we're going to go through a little process and see if we can determine what the original says. Go ahead and hit the next slide here. So, is the Bible that we have now, today, thousands of years later, actually what the authors wrote way back in the day? That's a good question. Glad you asked. How does the Bible compare to other trusted historical documents? We'll look at that briefly today, too. Do we have the originals that, that Paul penned and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that they wrote down? Do we have those? Actually, we don't. We do not have the originals. And is, is, are they, is that a problem that we don't? And are all the copies that we have, are they perfect? Do they have any errors? Yeah, there are errors in the copies because the copies were copied by people. Is that a problem? Is that a big problem? Do we, can we now just discard the Bible as written by men with errors? Well, we'll look at this. So everybody's got one of these sheets. Okay, so this is what I need you to do. It takes a little bit of interaction. Like I said, there's numbers one, two, three, four, and 5 on them. Each one of those has its own little error. If you could gather up with someone or a group of people and try to figure out what my original says. My original does not have any errors. So there should be five different errors. Who's got, who's got a number one? One that says number one in the bottom right-hand corner. And a number two, anybody got a number two? All right, number threes? They should be scattered around, okay. So number one, somebody, um, what does number one say? Y'all can get together and do this too. Does it say it is or it's? What does number one say? Does it have a comma, apostrophe? Okay, so number one says... It's, I-T apostrophe S. What about two, three, four, and five? Does it say it is or? It is. Okay, so now we've got four copies that all say it is, and we've got one copy that says it's. It's got an apostrophe in it. What do you, so somebody, what do you think the error was? you think it was the, the it is or the it's? The it's, right. So we can say, okay, probably the original probably says it is. Uh, the next one, let's see. There's a, the word grow. Who has the word, uh, it is vital that we each grow? Who has grow? Does anybody else have anything different? What does yours say? Grown. Grown. Okay. So what number is that? What number is on yours? Number five. So all the five say grown. What about one, two, three, and four? Grow. Okay, so we can surmise that the, the person that wrote the, that copy made an error and put an extra N on there, okay? Now, I will say this before we carry on. With the copies that we have of the originals, there are no errors that would change the meaning of anything. That would change the meaning. That's a humongous error. That's big. In all the copies that we have of the, the early New Testament, there's no errors like that. There's no errors that would replace a word with another word. 
They're generally the it's and it is kind of things. Or something like, let's see. It is vital that we each grow in our faith because to remain stagnant is what the enemy wants. Who has um, a misspelling on is? Is that number three? Number three, I-Z. And uh, one, two, four, and five says I-S. So what do you think the, the, the original says that I have? Is. Very good. Okay. So we can see how this is working here. Go ahead and go to the next slide. So right now, we've got, from just these copies, you could determine exactly what mine says. Every single one of your copies has an error on it. And I will say that not every single one of the Bible texts that was written from the, from the autograph has an error. And I would say that the ones that are there are a human error where you have an it's written in Hebrew and Greek, but like an apostrophe is, there's no errors that would change doctrine. There are no errors that would change a word to mean something else. They're not that big. But from all these copies that you have, every single one of those has an error. You could determine exactly what my original says. Exactly, right? It was pretty easy. So go to the next slide. Now, what if y'all didn't have all your copies and I had the original? What could possibly go wrong? You wouldn't have any idea what it says unless I told you what it says, right? There's been uh, throughout history maybe sometimes when certain bodies had the power and didn't allow the people to have the word, and they made up some pretty crazy stuff, right? Hey, your, your relative just recently died. Give me some money. I'll pray him out of purgatory. Get him into heaven. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So if I had the original, if I was the holder of the original, so, and knowing human nature, that would not work out very good. From that original, I could wreak all kinds of weirdness, right, and tell you that it says, oh, each one of you got to give me $5, like right now, right? No, it doesn't say that. Now, from that original, also what could happen is from human nature, go ahead and click the slide. It could be venerated or deified. And God's not going to leave behind something for us to worship. He's not going to leave behind some sort of object that we're going to, because we're humans, right? The golden calf just jumped out of the fire. I don't know where it came from, right? He's not going to leave behind stuff for us to go worship. So the fact that we don't have the original and the fact that we have copies, actually we can better preserve the original meaning because we don't have the originals, because we have copies. And I want to compare this to some other historical documents. Go ahead and hit the next slide. So if we look at the, the way that we can look at the historicity, I guess, of a document, determine if it's a valid copy as you look at a couple things and, and the first thing you can look at is the time gap between when the original was written and then when the earliest copy is that we have so if it was original was written and then there was a humongous time gap and we have copies well, okay it's it comes into question you know how how much this copy is like the original and the second thing to consider is the number of manuscripts if you've got the original somewhere in the past and, and we've lost it and we've got a lot of manuscripts, just like you guys had four copies, each one with an error, you could all determine exactly what my original said. So the number of manuscripts, the more the merrier, right? The more the better you have. So let's compare this to some uh, historical documents. Hit the next slide. So some of the stuff that we look at is absolute history, the writings of Caesar, uh, Tachycus, and, and Aristotle. Look at these time gaps and the number of copies. So Caesar, written between 100 and 144 B.C., the earliest copy we have of that is 900 A.D., about 1,000 years after. That's the earliest copy. we got 10 copies, though. 
So pretty good idea of what was said because you can, you can look at the copies just like you did and make comparisons and say, well, 9 out of 10 have this and this one doesn't, so likely that's what the original said. So feel pretty good about that one. Um, next one, 116 A.D., uh, 700 years later, we got one copy. Actually, he was a, a Greek historian, two major works, and both of those works, there's only one copy of each. 700 years later. So, and, and we look at that as, that's history. It's, that's taught as history. Aristotle, um, 1,400 years after the originals in 384 to 322 B.C., and we have five copies. So there you go. And this is stuff that's taught as history. It's fact. It's trusted. It's been... Um, gone through the ringer and we say this is this is good history so let's do a comparison of the new testament go ahead and hit it again so we got various orders of the new testament matthew mark luke john paul jude all these guys written between you know roughly 40 to 100 a.d and the earliest copies we have around 125 a.d some come later as well but that's a gap of 25 to 50 years now we do have copies that came later obviously but the earliest copies are 25 to 50 years from the original writing which is a lot shorter than 700 years or a thousand so right then, anybody ever played telephone game, right? You say something to one person, they say it to the next person, they say it to the next person. Well, the further along down the chain you get, the more likely that the message is going to get a little messed up. Well, here we've got uh, within people's lifetimes, well within, so a very short amount of time. Now, how many copies of these documents do you think we have? I mean, when we compare it to 10, which is a lot, 5 for Aristotle, how many copies of the New Testament do you think we have to compare? Hit the, hit the slide. It's roughly 24,000, slightly more than the rest of these documents. The Bible is absolutely the most, the most trustworthy document, historical document that we have on the planet. Now, God said he was going to preserve his word. And you can look at it and say, well, it was written a long time ago, and we don't have the originals. Well, I say thank God we don't have the originals, because we can better tell what the original said with these copies and also not have something left behind that someone could have the original and guard it and tell me what it says. God knows what he's doing. 24,000. 24,000. And on top of that, which is really kind of amazing, is if you took the, uh, well, kind of like me talk with my sister, right? If Christians get together, we talk scripture. When pastors talk, they talk scripture. And when the church fathers got together or when they sent each other correspondence, they did the same thing. And the church fathers, as they wrote letters back and forth, hey, Paul came, and this letter came, and blah, 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 blah. They'd go back and forth and talk to each other. If you took the writings that we have from just the church fathers, you can, if, if every New Testament, if every one of these manuscripts was tossed away and we didn't have them, and we just had the correspondence between the church fathers, we could get every bit of the New Testament less 11 verses. We would have the entire New Testament just miss 11 verses just from the correspondence. So did God keep his Bible for us? Yes. And was it written by men? Yes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Is God powerful enough to give us the word that he wanted us to have? Absolutely, without question. A lot of people have a hang-up about the Bible, and it's historicity. It blows every other historical work that we have as men in the modern age away by a lot. The Bible is trustworthy. So what we basically just looked at here is what the authors wrote down is what we have. Okay, I'm not telling you if it's true or not right now. I'm just saying but what these guys penned, that is what we have. And it's quite obvious that you, that's the way it is. So when Paul wrote the letter to Ephesus and he penned it, 
and gave it up. That's what we have because we've got so many copies of that because that's what the people did. They got it in. They just started copying it down and sending it out, copying it and sending it out. 24,000 copies. It's quite amazing. So God definitely wants you to know that the word that we have, and yes, we have NIV, NKJV, ESV, but they go back to the original Greek manuscripts and pull from. So each one of those is what we need to have. So the second question is, okay, so what, what about these guys that um, wrote it down? Did they believe it? I mean, we have what they wrote. Okay, great. So were they, why did they do it? Why did they write all this stuff down? Were they in it for the money? Were they in it for the fame? They traveled the world, right, preaching this gospel. So, you know, maybe they were a bunch of charlatans that, that were going around writing this stuff down, and they got rich and famous. So if you look at the apostles' lives and you look at their deaths, you see exactly that's the opposite of what happened. What happened to Paul? He got beheaded. He stuck to what he wrote. We have what he wrote, and he died for it. And then you get Peter. Church history says he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same way that Christ did. He went to the cross and died because he would not recant his word. We have apostles that were sawed in half, skinned alive, run through with spears, all of this stuff. If you look at all 12, taking Judas out, of course he died too, and put Paul in the mix, not all of them are in the Bible, but through church history, they were, except for John, they tried to kill him, but it didn't work. He hadn't written Revelation yet. But if you look at all the apostles, they all stuck to what they said and died for it. So if, they were, if their motive was fame and fortune and writing down lies to give to us to, to gain it, they never got it, and they never recanted what they said. So the word of God has been preserved for all of us to look into and see what God has to say. Speaking with someone just a few weeks ago, and he said that he just didn't feel like God was speaking to him. And I said, are you reading the Bible? And he said, well, I really don't like reading that much. I said, I didn't ask you if you like it. I asked if you're doing it. And he said, no. But he wants God to speak to him. Well, I'm speaking right now, and words are coming out of my mouth. Yes. In the Bible, that's God's words. That's why it's called the word of God. And that's how he speaks to us. And walking around the United States, we can just about trip on Bibles. They're everywhere. And sometimes we take that for granted, that they're everywhere. I'll, I'll read it later or whatever. It's, it's all over the place. And we got to realize that he preserved it for us in, 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 a, in a remarkable fashion, using men to do it like he does because he's just, that's the way he is. But it's, when, you, when you learn about the historicity of things that we learn about in school and that this is fact and that's fact, and then you look at the Bible and how just completely crazy it is that it has been preserved for us to read. And that the, what we have today is what the disciples and the apostles wrote. And the fact that every single one of them died for it. None of them recanted their story. That says something. Those are the people that walked with Jesus while he was on the, saw what he did, were given the power, that did the same things. They're the ones that died for it. They're the ones that wrote down this stuff that we're reading. And it's all true. So what does that mean as far as us growing? Get into the word. It is of utmost importance that we learn the word. And, and the, the passage that we read this morning in Catalyst said they first, they, they 
got together and, you know, uh, as a group. And, but what they did was they learned doctrine, the doctrine of the apostles. That was the first thing listed, the doctrine of the apostles. And a lot of people, ugh, doctrine. You get in and read the Bible and learn it. That's for the preacher. He'll tell me that on Sunday morning. Eh. If, 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 if you're feeding, remember, you are what you eat. If what you're being fed is just coming from Pastor Clint or me or someone else that, that's talking to you, you're starving. You're absolutely starving. Because this, be, this should just be a little morsel of stuff that you're, you're already having full meals during the week. And this is just a little tidbit of something to add on. Because I'm not your relationship with Christ. Pastor Clint is not your relationship with Christ. Whatever other churches or pastors or things you hear on the radio, they are not your relationship with Christ. Your relationship with Christ is, is your relationship with Christ. And getting into the word is so ultimately important for both when we're gathered together like we are now, for both when you've retreated, and to know what to be obedient to. Because God's word is, is his will. So like I said earlier, the growth is so important, but the lack of it stems from, I say, one of two things. A lack of belief or a fear of men. A lack of belief or a fear of men. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power unto salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To let other people hold you down and tell you that's ridiculous or, or your Christianity kind of cramps my style, they can say that, but if you give into it, you're weak. And, and that's a fear of man. You should not have any fear of men at all. What can they do to you? Make fun of you? Laugh at you? Kill you? Okay. Win, win, win. I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, right? Not that I want to go die, but I can't lose. And to be able to walk through this life fearless, fearless is incredible. If you have fear, the word will take it away from you. The word, you will lose your fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. Fear God in his reverence because he can kill your soul. Right? But if you're in his family, what does he promise? I'm not going to do it. It's in his word. We can trust him. Don't fear man. I'm going to go back in the Hebrews. I read verses um, in chapter 6. I'm going to go back into chapter 5 in Hebrews. Chapter 5, verse 12. It says, in fact, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word over and over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, still, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, in chapter 6, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. we got to get off the milk. And the, and the only way to get off the milk is to grow. And as you grow, you start eating solid food. And I remember when I, I was saved at a young age, and I say young age, I was 17, and I know I was saved. I was, I was transformed. I loved the Lord. I was digging in the Bible. I was getting commentaries and reading, and I was telling people about it. I, had, I was clueless because I really wasn't being mentored. But, and, and, I, and I did for a long time after I got into college. I, I was off doing my own thing. I never really got, I never really grew past just milk. That's it. And it affected me to where decades of my life I wasted. I was still saved. And, and when, I, when I was in my early 40s, really, is when I, God finally just said, 
you're done with this garbage. Get on your face. And I apologized, and, and then I told Tam the next day, I was like, I have not been the spiritual head of this household. It's about time. She's like, yes, it is. And wow, what, what a great thing. And, and since then, I've been really digging in the Word. And can God use the time that I spent being a knucklehead? Absolutely, he can. But he can also use the time that you're not spending being a knucklehead, where you're growing in him. I, I feel like I have a, a decent grasp of the Bible. I feel like I understand the truths of the Word. There's a lot I don't. And I guarantee you... For those couple decades, had I spent in the Word, I would know a lot more than I know now, right? So I was telling the class today, you know, do, do I have regrets in my life? Of course I do. I mean, if you, if you don't have any regrets, you never did anything wrong. I understand God can use what I've been through for His glory, and, and thank God for that. He's awesome, and He does. But He could also have used if I were obeying Him during that time as well, you think? Right. I would probably know more than I know now. I'd probably be a better preacher than I am now. I could probably speak better and just all kind of have a closer relationship with Christ. But I remember at that time when I, I fell on my face and just realized that I, there was just so much in my life that I'd just been living for myself and not for the Lord and decided, God basically smacked me and told me I was going to decide that. And I said, yes, sir, that it's time. It's time you live for me. And I remember thinking, man, I've got, like, Ian was nine years old at the time, or, and I had little young boys. I'm like, I've ruined them. I have ruined my family because I've just been living like a knucklehead this entire time. It's too late. I mean, I'm going to go forward and do what I can do, but pretty much a lot of stuff is wrecked. It's too late. And a verse came to me. Actually, Pastor Clint gave me the verse. It's Joel 2.25. And if you're in a situation in your life where you feel like, I haven't been doing it. I've been talking it maybe. I've been wanting to do it. I've been thinking it, but I haven't been doing it. And, and now I'm filling the blank, years old, or it's been however long. It's not too late because you've got the rest of your life, and God can use what's happened in the past, and he can restore those years. And I can tell you that my only really regret would be the fact that I waited so long. I don't regret, I don't regret starting to follow Christ really as a disciple, as someone that just wasn't saved and had my ticket punched, right? That someone that said, hey, I really want to know the truths of God and move forward. I, I regret not doing it sooner, but I'm glad I did it when I did it, right? Tomorrow is no good. Today is the day. Today is the day to really just make that stance. And it takes doing. You can want to and not do it. You have to do it. Um, salvation, absolutely free. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He did all the work. You go to heaven. Congratulations. Like Peter says, you may enter just like you've escaped a fire, but you're in, right? You're saved. That's good. Now, if your attitude is, that's all I want, you check your salvation. Have you really been transformed? But if you're at a point where it's just, I, I need to do this. I need to live for the Lord. Salvation's free. Discipleship, it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you absolutely everything. Well worth the price. Absolutely well worth the price. Anytime you buy something that costs a lot, hopefully it's worth the price. God's economy, it is. Joel 2.25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts, and the locusts that swarm, my great army I sent among you. I will repay the years that the locusts have eaten. It's never too late. 
it, it, it could be right now is the time where you just you, you realize that the Lord is telling you and has been telling you, get on the train. It's time to roll. I've got stuff I'm doing. I'm going to do it with you or without you, but I really like you with me. If you're not going to do it, someone else is. But I, the Lord uses his people. We've got to gather together. We've got stuff we need to do around here. We've got church members that they need help. We can do all this together. You've got to retreat by yourself and make time every day to spend just some quality. Even if it's just 20 minutes, just get alone. Get, get quiet. Pray. Read scripture. Meditate on the word, right? Just some alone time with God. Obey him. Those things that he says to do, go do them. You actually show that you love them by obeying them. And all those things are gathered around the word. The word of God that he's preserved for us. That is 100% true. That we have what the original authors wrote. And they all died for it. So today is the day. If the Lord's been telling you, you need to start really cranking it up. Now's the day. And I'll talk to men. Men, the problem with this country is men. The problem with this local area is men. And I'm not a man basher, but what I'm saying is we're the heads of our household. We're the heads, not, not that women, the women are right beside us. I'm not saying anything that, you know, we need to domineer over everybody. But when the men don't get it right, it doesn't work right, okay? And I, I, I know that there's so much that we could be doing that we're not doing. And sometimes, you know, the women pick up the slack, and God bless them. I was at the AHG thing the other night, and we're looking at the women helpers. There's a dozen of them, and they all have helpers, and they're all over the place. We don't have a trail life troop. You know why? Because the men wouldn't do it. If that hurts, I'm sorry. That's the reason we don't have a trail life troop. We had three guys that would come every week, and we needed more, and nobody stood up, so we ended it. I was like, well, that's my ministry. It's not the Lord's. So, men, we got to stand up. we got to do this. Man, if, we could, if, if the men of this church, Town Creek, 250 Town Creek Road, if the men of the church stood up and stopped being afraid of other men, you know what we could do in this world? You know what we could do in this world? You know what 12 men did that were fearless? They turned the world upside down. There's more than 12 of us in here. If we could become fearless men of God, we could turn this world upside down. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for just all that you do for us, Lord. Father, we thank you for the fact that you've clearly shown in your word what it is we need to do. Father, you showed us that your word has been preserved for us. Lord, you give us opportunities every day, opportunities every day to do your bidding. And Lord, sometimes we miss it. And and sometimes we hit the mark. And Lord, I just thank you so much for the the blessings that you give us and, and the, just such a wonderful parent that you are, that you love us and and you tell us, just come to me, and I, I've got you, and, and it's never too late, and you'll restore those years that the locusts have eaten, because you love us so much, and, and you know our situation, Father, you know where we've been, you know where we are, and Father, you know where we're going, and Lord, I just pray that each and every one of us hears you call us to do your will, and Lord, I pray that we can at least see just enough of you to trust you, so that we get more into your word and learn more about you and have our faith grow and grow and grow. Lord, my, my, my dream is to, to become so much like you that when I get into heaven, it's a smooth transition. But Lord, I know that I'm so far off that mark. And Lord, I, I thank you that you love me anyway. But Lord, give us the option to go do what we need to do. Salvation is free, Father, but you have us made to go do your work. And Lord, we love it. Thank you so much for everything. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.